Welcome to the second annual Health and Human Rights Summit here in Tucson, Arizona. My name is Drew Heaton and I am the director for Humans for Humanity Coalition. Our mission is to awaken individuals to the health and human rights crisis of our day. We promote, preserve, and protect traditional ethics, objective scientific research, and informed medical consent. We believe in the ethical treatment of human beings and in the abolition of human exploitation. Through coordinated volunteerism, personal religious practice, and personal spiritual refinement, we educate citizens and political leaders regarding the ethical questions that influence government policy. And we financially support through fundraising those organizations which share our values. We support the values of compassion over criticism, forgiveness over condemnation, autonomy over subjection, consent over coercion, and data over dogma. If you are wondering what coordinated volunteerism is or looks like, this summit is the perfect example. United in the desire to preserve liberty for ourselves, our children, and future generations, many individuals donated their time, talents, and resources on their own initiative. No one in our organization receives compensation for their service. The monumental effort so many individuals provided to bring this event to fruition is a miracle. Good morning. My name is Carl Kantek, and uh, first off, I want to say, you know, when Drew read that work from when she was 17, I'm glad that wasn't part of the assignment today, because if I brought something, it would probably be a list of, you know, beer and uh, more beer. I, it, I wouldn't, it wouldn't read like that. And, that uh, and the other part that's kind of interesting is that we had no coordination whatsoever, but my presentation will also incorporate a family, uh, you know, the, the influence that my family has had on uh, the work that, as you'll see what we're doing here, but that's part of it. So very quickly, my name is Carl Kantek. I'm from Washington State, and uh, I have been working on maintaining the ability for parents to direct the medical care of their children and uh, part of that has been, uh, I'm on a school board and it's a very small district and of course funding follows the students. And if the exemption rules are uh, excessively tight, then some families won't go to school and then we, we, we will lose that funding. So the title of my speech is, But Why Would They Lie? And uh, these are irrefutable examples of public health, government and industry misrepresentations of material facts to advance agendas. And it's, uh, uh, it's actually quite sad. So uh, my disclaimer, I'm not a doctor or a lawyer. Uh, nothing I present should be considered a legal or medical advice. So I got started in Washington. This is just a list here. And I'm going to show some examples from this. But these are a sh this is an incomplete list of all of the misrepresentations I have found uh, by government health officials to the legislatures in order to pass uh, unnecessary legislation. And we're gonna, the, I'm gonna show you one that incorporates the first five. And then number 17, one in a million injury rate, that's what I'll be speaking on tomorrow. Now the title of my talk comes from my mom because I walk her, she's a, the, one of the most loving persons in the whole world. And when I show her 
and she wants to believe that the people that should be trustworthy are trustworthy. And when I show her that that's false, then she, but why would they lie? You mean even that nice Dr. Fauci? And I have to say, Mom, especially that nice Dr. Fauci. Oh my gosh. So here's how I, my, my entry into this issue was that in uh, 2010 or so, uh, the Washington State Department of Health and the Medical Association shopped this graph to the legislators and uh, with this abuse and overuse of philosophical and personal belief exemptions has resulted in a 35% vaccination deficit. You will be responsible for the deaths in the inevitable epidemic that's coming. And on this graph, it's a little bit washed out with the light, but uh, that uh, the red or brown column is our state at 65% or so. And, uh, and then when state legislators, they never like being in the lower half for advocates here. So you wanna make sure that they're not getting away with that. And uh, so then I asked my representative, I, and what's, your, what's your response to this? Now I had already known the exemption rate was only three to 6% in Washington. They track it by vaccine series. So I knew this was an impossible number. Where were they getting this number from? I called my representative and he goes, man, we're in trouble. I, I must vote for eliminating e exemptions. It's the only responsible action. And I go, what are you talking about? He says, I saw the graph. And I said, well, send me the graph and let me look at this. So I studied the graph and then I called up the Department of Health. And I said, uh, I said, Dave, let me help you read this chart. First off, that NIS, that does not measure Washington K-12 vaccination rates. 19 to 35 month old children aren't in K-12. These children are not subject to requirements, so they don't need exemptions. And the 431314 is a series of vaccines, uh, 4-DTAP, 3-polio, 1-MMR, 3-HEP-B, 1-chickenpox, and 4-PCV by your 35th month. And if you don't have all of those, by the, then you're, that's where that 35% comes from. It's all or nothing. If you miss one, you're out of the list. So I said, Dave, you're being shown a chart of how many children who are not in Washington schools and not subject to exemptions have completed by age three all the doses in a vaccine series that includes vaccines that aren't even required for K-12. I called up the health department uh, and they, they tried to push it off on the Washington State Medical Association. I go, well, you can't do that. It's your data. Well, we're not pushing the bill. It's like, well, you need to correct these people. You're just going to let, do, do state agencies let outside organizations cite false data? And apparently so. So then I talked to the Washington Medical Association and I said, you're using the wrong number. And he says, well, the numbers don't matter. We got to get rid of these exemptions. You can't have people picking and choosing. And I said, A, you're wrong. That's exactly how medicine works. We do get to pick and choose. And B, if the numbers don't matter, why don't you use the right ones? And that started, that was 10, it made me a little mad. And here I am 10 years later. So this misrepresentation, this is state, county, public health officers, employees to the legislature. Then you have the Washington State Medical Association, the Washington State Academy of Pediatrics, all those clowns working together. And what happens is when the advocates, when we go in there, they already have pre-existing relationships with these people. And in some areas, the health department is doing the right thing. And, and when they, they sit down and show a graph like that, the, the assumption from the legislature is, well, if they tell me this is a graph 
I, I have to believe them. And if they say we need to get rid of exemptions or there's going to be dead kids, then I have to believe that too. And then, of course, Dave said, but why would they lie? And here's where my dad comes in. He's in the middle, and then you can see me in my cool uh, shades on the far right. That was a day, huh? That was back in the, that was back in the day. That's funny. You know, my, I uh, stopped getting my hair cut when this started. I usually wear a crew cut. And uh, this is the longest my hair has been pretty much since then. My son and I, we, we said, well, we're, gonna, we're not going to cut our hair till this is over. So his hair, he's, he's got. So my dad taught me, Jim, he said that, uh, Carl, there's uh, often two reasons people do something, the one they tell you and the real one. So if the one they tell you doesn't match, then you got to find the real one. So why lie? It's because the truth did not support ending exemptions. So I corrected that graph uh, and, you know, got the actual data. And, and to his credit, Dave, you know, realized he, was, he took the proper amount of umbrage, and we were able to stop that bill or modify that bill to where it was simply a doctor's signature, which is that still makes it medically mediated because you have to get a doctor to sign the paper. Anyway, so that was that. Now, one of the, one of the advocates had a lobbyist. I, I ended up in a conference room with the governor state advisor. And I went through this material. Again, it's washed out, but that's every county, and it's all the rates, and it's bup, 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 and it shows that it's 96% plus. And so she asked, is this the actual department? And here's the governor's advisor who'd never seen an actual Washington Department of Health vaccination report with the real rates. She gave it to her assistant and said, can you check this and then see if I photoshopped it or something, confirmed it was real. And she just blurted out, you know, I've always just heard the rates are low and they're dropping. So then she said, did you show this to the bill sponsors? Maybe they'll withdraw the legislation. And I recognized we are in big trouble here with this. So if the reason they tell you is not the real one, you have to figure out what is the real reason. I had not recognized that the vaccination rates were as high as they were. And so if the rates aren't low, why the pressure to end exemptions? There isn't enough money in the, in Washington state, it was 30 or 40,000 total, which is to those guys, that's a rounding error. And so, it, you know, if you're just going to print money like they do, because of the, of the basic requirements, which most people interpret as mandates, they just know every year they got 4 million fresh customers, multiply that times the dose schedule, and you know what your profit's gonna be. So uh, if you would just quietly let the 3% exempt and then just collect that 97%. So they are lying, but why? Then right after that, I happened to be in contact with some people from Vermont, and the Vermont Department of Health, they create this map of their state, and uh, with the fear-mongering being that there are 71 schools with over 6% of philosophical exemption rates, and that the exemption rate is rising. So I did what I do, which is find the actual data, and, and Vermont public schools have less than 7,000 children per grade in the entire state. Okay, Washington has 80,000 per grade. California has 500,000 per grade. There's five, over 500,000 kindergartners. So if you look at that on the, so the top left, that's the public schools. So they have 6,226 kindergartners. And of those 278 or three, I can't read it, uh, use an exemption. So in the entire state, 
you've got 341 kids with an exemption out of 273 schools. They barely are able to have one exempt kid for each school. And the place is so rural, you would have to drive people from school to school to sustain an outbreak. It's really ridiculous. <laughs> Who's going to do that, right? These clowns. So then it was, okay, why is the, the, the exemption rate is rising? So I, I found the 2007-2008 rate, and it was only 125 kids were exempt. So what happened between 08 and 10, which is that they added the chickenpox vaccine and the hepatitis B vaccine to the schedule. Now, even pro-vaccine people will recognize that chickenpox is an insignificant infection for the vast majority of people, and hepatitis B is a... Uh, uh, vaccine for IV drug using sex, blah, blah, blah. So uh, probably your average kindergartner is not at risk of contracting hepatitis B. I got into those guys too, and they were talking about one county with this excessively high hepatitis B rate. So I looked at it and it's a prison. That's where most hepatitis B is in the health system and in the, in the penal system, the, the corrections. So when I looked at that then, by these are the public schools, is that uh, in 2007, 2008, there were 32 schools above 6% exemption, and then adding chickenpox doubled that number in a single year. So when the, uh, they don't like it when they talk about it, I say, you want to reduce exemptions, take chickenpox back off the schedule. The other thing they do is they try to claim that every exemption rep rec represents an entirely unvaccinated child. And this is from their data. So you have North Bennington grade school, which has 14 kindergartners. That means that each kid's about, that's a 7% each kid measures. That's another trick they use that's on those 17 I have listed. But in that school, 13 of the 14 have all the DTAP, 13 of 14 have all the polio, 13 of 14 have all the MMR, 13 of 14 have all of their hep B, and 11 of 14 have all the chicken pox. So you've got three kids that use an exemption to opt out of the chicken pox and then one child each for the other vaccines but because of the way they measure it that school has a 50 percent exemption rate so when you hear about that you know uh, t there are no low rates and anytime you hear this frightening exemption numbers they're playing games it's all games so here's another one is Sudbury country school that they have three kindergartners and in their case all three have all of the vaccines, one child opted out of the chicken pox, and that gave that school a 33% exemption rate. And that school is therefore one of the scary red dots on the chart. So Vermont was, uh, Vermont is so small, the legislators actually answer their own phone, they shop in the towns and the people could get to them. They did a week's worth of hearings, it was three to one bad guys against the good guys. And at the end of it, all, all they said was, well, we just need to move the measurement to first grade when all the kids are old enough for all the shots. And why are you measuring this? It was uh, quite powerful. But then two years later, after the legislators we trained, they went and did it again and uh, were able to remove the philosophical. So if they'd been honest, they would have said, we have 71 schools with an average of one to four students with an exemption, often only for chicken pox. Average school in Vermont has 28 kindergartners. So two, three kids puts you into that da the danger zone. So what else is going on? Here's Arizona specific. And you guys have got phenomenal rates in Arizona and you've got extremely low so uh, exemption rates. So Greenlee, I picked out there, 
Greenlee County has a 2.5% exemption rate. And then uh, uh, on, the other, uh, on the other counties, I think you've got two that are, there's one at nine and one at 11, and then the rest of them are all the normal two, three, four, five percent. So the, how do you, you can't scare a legislator with those numbers. So what do you do is you change the criteria. Instead of showing what the exemption rate is, you say, well, these schools have 95% MMR. And how many of the schools in that county do? So Greenlee, uh, which only has two schools, right? So they went from being, you know, being a very respectable only 2.5% exemption rate. Instead, only 50% of the schools have the MMR. And one of the schools has 15 kids. So one kid missing MMR kicks them out of the 95% rate. It's just gamesmanship and baloney all the way through. So anytime you hear, you can't trust any of them. So this is not science or even honest data reporting. It's marketing to sell legislation to elected representatives. I've asked state attorney generals, auditors, don't these people have to be honest? How can they, how can they lie to the governing board? I'm on a school board, and I, I, am, I am reliant upon the superintendent to be honest to me to provide proper governance for this organization. And I have watched public health officers lie to their governing board, and the board knows it. In one situation, one of the board members is a former judge advocate general, and he's tracking right with me. And, uh, but he's in a jam because that's their number one employee in the county. So it's clearly not about getting the rates up. They're already high. The exemption rates logically respond to increases in requirements. It's not about revenue. They've got 95% of the pediatric market saturated. So could it be that seeing people resist a chickenpox vaccine and hepatitis vaccine alerted pharma and public health that there is a limit even for the pro-vac parents, partly. But my conclusion was I started casting about because especially in Vermont, we're talking about less than 400 kids. That's not worth the money that they spent on the lobbyist to try to, to get this bill through. So if you're familiar with these different uh, plans, Healthy People 2010, 2020, 2030, and they have 95% vaccination goals for the adult population, and there's simply no way they're going to get that without mandates. So what I, my opinion is that eliminating vaccine exemptions as a legal principle and precedent in the school-age population prior to rolling out the adult schedule with mandates is to make exemptions unavailable for adults. And that's why, you know, they just, anywhere they can do it, they're doing it. We're seeing it right now, of course. So what about the science? So. This is uh, Peter Hotez, if you're watching the news, he pops up. And uh, he did a paper a few years ago, the state of the anti-vaccine movement in the United States, a focused examination of non-medical exemptions in states and counties. So this uh, study took off, it was worldwide. And the Google searches here, that's two pages of Google searches, the first page and the last page, but that only illustrates 530 links deep in a month which is not organic, that was pushed and uh, done. So what really drove that was this chart here, which is the ranking of the 10 leading counties by non-medical exemption per kindergarten population. And you see Camas County, Idaho, and uh, largest city by population, log that in your brain, okay, uh, at, with a 26.67% exemption rate. So this is NBC News, 
And uh, uh, in the highlight is that, you know, uh, uh, nearly a quarter of the children in Camas County are skipping the shots. And then there's a quote from Dr. Hotez, what we are seeing are pockets of intense anti-vaccine resistance and that what has happened is the anti-vaccine groups are strong, well-organized, and well-funded. <laughs> and we're, we're in a situation in schools where you have 20, 30, and 40% unvaccinated, like Sudbury, right? One of three, 33%. And yet in the same story, it says that less than 1% of toddlers na nationwide have never been vaccinated. So that should tell you right there that it's impossible, the other claims. You'll see, they'll say, well, these schools, I just got done with Connecticut, and they, the, they, their Department of Public Health has a list of schools that with low MMR and a different list of schools with high exemption rate. Shouldn't it be the same list? So then the spokesman review, uh, Idaho has eight of the top 10 counties with the highest exemption rates, the study found. In Camas County, nearly 27% of the kindergarten population opted out of childhood vaccinations. And uh, Hotez said he didn't know what factors were behind the high exemption rates in some of the rural places. And he's hoping to conduct a follow-up study on social and demographic factors. So I did, this, I did that for him. And all you have to do is Google Camas County and you can see the, uh, not really a metropolitan area. Okay, and then Morgan County on the right is, was number 10 on the list. So that's the top one. So that's the city of Fairfield, okay? It's a five by nine block neighborhood, okay? And then that red, that red uh, rectangle in the middle, that's Camas County Elementary School. Camas County has one school, and in that one school, they have one kindergarten class, and in that one kindergarten class, they had 15 kids, so their 26.67% was four students exempting. 530 links deep in Google, worldwide renowned. Unbelievable. You can see there's a picture of the school. So that county, it only has a one person per square mile density. There's 1,000 people and it's 1,000 square mile county. It's the 43rd of the 44 least populated counties in Idaho. And I'll tell you what, if you look at basically any vaccine research, it's this quality. So in sciences, does the data support a conclusion? The data is that Camas and other counties in Idaho have a high percentage exemption rate. My personal hypothesis is that when you measure 15 kindergarten students by percentage, where each is 6.6%, it results in high rates, and that Idaho has eight of the 10 high exemption counties because it has very low population density and small kindergarten cohorts. Now, in contrast, Dr. Hotez's conclusion to the same data was the well-funded, highly organized anti-vaccine movement has reached its tentacles into Camas County to convince the parents of these four children to use an exemption. The anti-vax movement is canvassing Idaho to make it the state with the most high exemption counties in the country. This nefarious group has turned Idaho into a hotspot of anti-vaccine sentiment. This guy's on TV all the time. So what does this say about peer review? In that study, they have a heat map that shows uh, where all the exemptions are. 
And if you, if you get a heat map of population density, they go boom. Nobody asked him that. I have a whole talk about that one. I basically, every single one of those things and more are in that paper. It's an atrocity. So I have, I, I've got gigabytes of similar take-aparts of their, the, the, what, their efforts to justify what they're doing. So that gives you a bit of, the, of my context when this uh, corona issue popped up and how accepting I was of the official narrative, okay? So a friend of mine said, hey, what do you think's really going on? I have to say, anybody asked me anything, I said, do you really want to know, right? And uh, uh, so I ended up doing my unified field theory of fraud. And I'll go through each of these squares, but it it's kind of reads uh, clockwise. So in this case, we're going to start with the uh, why would they lie? So the reward is a corona vaccine, 7 billion people market, multi-dose, possibly mandated annual market. EUA is reduced time to market, uh, no liability, government supported, rehabilitates reputation of the most hated industry. So uh, emergency use authorization is that the FDA requires that there are no adequate approved available treatments, countermeasure injury compensation program. A countermeasure is a vaccination medication device or other item recommended. So it's a, uh, they don't, there's no liability on the companies. So this is about the uh, emergency use and that the FDA may authorize unapproved medical products in the emergency serious life-threatening diseases when there's no adequate and approved available alternatives. This is the official NIH guidance, no early treatment. And uh, so you go home until you require emergency care and can be admitted to the hospital. So if you had a regular doc and you went in, they test you, it's like, well, can't do anything for you, go home. They don't, not even chicken soup apparently. So this is no liability to the pharmaceutical companies. If you are injured or killed, you or your estate files for benefits to the HHS. And if uh, people are familiar with uh, their other uh, no liability program, they, they don't get a very good review from people that have, have been forced into that system. And then Pfizer, they got, they, the money was shoved at them. And then uh, this is Gallup poll showing that Americans are more than twice as likely to rate pharmaceutical industry negatively, 58% is positively giving it a net positive score of minus 31. I think it's worse than big oil. So novel corona, infectious without symptoms, widespread and growing, deadly and untreatable, uncontrollable global emergency. So the University of Florida finds no asymptomatic or presymptomatic spread. So the asymptomatic spread is, uh, in, it, the percentage is zero. And this is on people that live in the same house with someone who has the infection. A PCR test that detects non-infective particles creates novel pandemic where the majority of people who test infected can be healthy, quote unquote asymptomatic, but still a threat to everyone. Cases driven by test volume, not ill people seeking medical care. This is the first time a positive lab test without symptoms has ever been classified as a case. So this is a, uh, the, on the left is the CDC emergency use using the PCR, and they were uh, running 40 cycles for the testing. And um, from the PCR experts, if you run enough cycles, you can find anything. And then, uh, but interestingly, 
for the breakthrough, if you've been vaccinated and then present with uh, uh, COVID symptoms, they only run 28 cycles. Nothing wrong with that, I guess, right? And then here's a, there's a video of uh, Dr. Fauci talking about that anything over 35 cycles is picking up just fragments of dead RNA. Now, the way that this was done, you should get this paper. It's from IPAC. The, uh, some scientists and lawyers went and looked at the way that the data has been mishandled. And so on April 14th, the Council of State and Territorial Epidemiologists, they changed the, what a case is, the definition. And you can't do that in the federal system without filing uh, in the, you have to put a notice in the federal register with 60 days to comment. You have to say why you want to do it. And then the other people get to comment and say, no, you shouldn't do that. And then the same thing happened with the uh, death certificate, they, the, how, how they were going to mark the death certificates. So that is a, a really valuable paper. Deadly and untreatable. Untreatable prioritizes the vaccine. No approved early treatments and protocols that send patients home until sick enough to be admitted to the ER increases poor outcomes and mortality. How deadly would regular flu be if no treatment was given before hospitalization? So here is from the frontline COVID care group. And um, you know they have a very effective program utilizing uh, uh, existing drugs and other therapies, but if the infection is treatable, then there's no emergency use authorization available. That's why none of it's been allowed. Asymptomatic and masks. So inconclusive mass data is explained by no asymptomatic spread. Masks are supposed to be source control, but if asymptomatic aren't contagious, even if mask works, they can't work if you're not sick. They don't work, but even if they did work, they wouldn't work if you're not sick. So the PCR creates a case, does not identifies them. Masks are to tell and remind people there is a pandemic. Otherwise, you wouldn't know. You'd be just going through your life. And you know, my, uh, my ex-wife works for the state of Oregon, and she works in the, uh, with the homeless and stuff. And she goes, she goes, I don't understand. None of them have passed away. These people have no help. You know, I mean, they have whatever, but they're living in tents. If you haven't been to Portland, it's awful. There are tent communities, and these people are, you know, using five-gallon buckets for relieving themselves. No wash, and none of them, none of them. That doesn't make sense. So here is, and for Washington State, this is a, uh, they put out a guide on 229-20, so the 229-2020, uh, and NPIs, non-pharmaceutical interventions. They had 13 possible interventions, and the use of mask is not even on the list as a possibility. And yet they're now claiming that there's robust evidence. So I went to the source document. I'm kind of irritating about that. So then I found that our, from our mill.wa.gov, and it, it, it's suggesting using a mask in public if you are sick. And it says the evidence base for effectiveness of mask use by the public is not conclusive. Yet somehow in the short time since March 1st, 2020, over four decades of research has been overturned. And from just a simple logistical standpoint, if you're going to do a study, you have to design the study, get approval for the study, conduct the study, bring it in, analyze the study, send it out for peer review. There's no, it's just physically impossible. And it has to be so overwhelming that you're going to throw out the previous 40 years. HCQ, ivermectin, and vitamin D. 
So if low-cost generic HCQ, ivermectin, high-dose vitamins, then the emergency use authorization is not available for remdesivir, therapeutics, or vaccines. Now, the Lancet Surgisphere HCQ study proved commission fraud occurs. Now, what happened in here, so the Lancet published a paper that, that where the, uh, the data was not suspect, it was a complete fabrication. Surgisphere claimed a real-time artificial intelligence controlled data access for 90,000 patients on six continents. Now, the people that really do that said, there's no way. We, I've been doing this for 15 years, and you, there was no way you could negotiate all of the agreements, much less the fact that the majority of the, the, the places, they don't have computer. How, who in Africa has their data on computer? It's just ridiculous. So the real data researchers quickly pointed this out. They had to pull that in 14 days because it was so ridiculous. Have we heard how did that get through? The Lancet is supposed to be one of the top medical journals in the whole world, and clearly, this was, uh, this paper demonstrates that commissioned fraud in the most prestigious medical journals is available to those with access. This was not questionable interpretation, poor study design. This was a case of we need a study to discredit HCQ and we need it now. Where is the investigation of how a pa paper with fictional data? So that, when they went to the LinkedIn on Surgisphere, one of the people was an adult uh, uh, entertainment model and uh, a science fiction writer. It was like only like four people. It was so absurd. So the question now is, how are we supposed to know which other papers are real science and which are commission fraud? They don't have a little asterisk on it. So that was my unified field theory. And then... <laughs> So, so now when my mom says, well, why would they lie? And then I had to say, I guess it's because they didn't have parents like you and dad. <laughs> that makes her feel better about it because she doesn't want to believe that all these people that she wants to trust. And then my purpose in keeping to do this is so my son says to me, dad, they're lying, aren't they? Thank you. Thank you.